Welcome to The Alex Tremble Show, where we share the strategies and secrets you need to know in order to successfully increase your influence, build strategic networks, and advance in your career. An award-winning speaker, author, and leadership coach, Alex brings executive leaders from across the world to share their inspirational stories and insights to help you become an exceptional public servant while also reaching your career goals. Without further ado, here's your host, Alex D. Tremble. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Tremble. I'm thanking you so much for joining us here today. Today, we have the opportunity to sit down and hear from Dr. Charlene Drew Jarvis. She is amazing. Responding to the need to rebuild the economy of Washington, D.C. after the riots following the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., Councilmember Jarvis ran for public office and was elected six different times in the District of Columbia. She is phenomenal. We're going to be talking about how she grew her influence so she could help her community. We're going to be talking about how um, we can have very difficult conversations um, with our white counterparts about race relations. And truly, she's going to share some phenomenal, impactful ideas on how to build real relationships with those around you so that you can have the influence that you would like to not only help your community and those around you, but also to help yourself move up and progress and advance in your career. I did wanted to say that this interview was conducted in November of 2020, which means that when she references the president and what's going on with the administration, she is referring to the Trump administration at that point. Um, man, look, I'm excited. I'm ready to jump in this. I hope that you are. Let's get going. Hello, Dr. Jarvis. It is so wonderful to have you with us today. How are you doing? Today is a good day. Uh, this is um, almost Thanksgiving. And of course, the time of Thanksgiving is a time that we give thanks and that we, um, we're in touch with our families uh, and that we're reaching out to our community. Uh, and this is a welcome time because it's been a difficult time and it still is a difficult time for many families. So the extent to which we can re reach out, um, touch someone's hand, this is a good time. To be completely honest, you, you, you started this conversation out, I think perfectly actually. Um, you, you talked about the community, you talked about reaching out and touching someone's hand during these troubling times, these trying times. Um, we can just start off with saying, you know, you initially ran for office. When you, you ran for office to serve in the um, uh, city council for DC, you won in 1979 and won and won and won and won. Like you were reelected six different times. Why do you believe that you were elected six different times? Well, uh, let, let me start a little earlier on, because I, I came uh, into politics from a career in science. So I'm, I'm a neuropsychologist, and my, uh, my career started uh, uh, at the National Institute of Mental Health, where, where I did basic research on the brain. Uh, and after almost 10 years there, um, you know, they, they say PhDs know more and more about less and less. Uh, I found out that I was... <laughs> 
detached from um, a community which itself was uh, ch being challenged. Uh, <clears throat> and so I decided that I wanted to be of more present use um, because science um, is far reaching. Its goals are in the future and it takes a long time to get results. Um, <clears throat> but 1979, I ran um, uh, for office um, because the city uh, needed to recover uh, from some of the uh, effects of the riot uh, following the death of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, because our neighborhood commercial cardies had been devastated, um, because there was really a need to figure out how to restore uh, those communities, um, which were principally um, African-American community. So I started out with a mission uh, and, and the mission was to help rebuild um, our city, to rebuild our communities. And I was very fortunate to have been named the chair of the Economic Development Committee. As chair of the Economic Development Committee, I had a chance uh, to exactly what, do what I came into, into the council to do. Uh, and one of the things that I think about my success is that I was very determined and inclusive and questioning um, and pushing. Um, but I also learned how to use the power of my committee. Um, the Committee on Economic Development had power so that when federal banks came to the district uh, to merge with other banks, um, my committee, very fortunately, uh, had the uh, ability um, to condition the entry into the district by saying you have to have community reinvestment. You have to have banks in underserved neighborhoods. You have to have people of color and people uh, and women on your boards. Uh, and it was peculiar that the District of Columbia got the right to do that because we were considered as a state uh, for the purpose of doing that. We are not a state, but we were considered as purpose of a state, uh, like a state, and so we got that control. And so I learned how to use that control um, and brought to the table the bankers who wanted to come into the district and created those community reinvestment plans. Uh, and every time I had an opportunity to leverage my committee, I did that. So when um, developers came and wanted to use the authority of industrial revenue bonds, we said, fine, but we'd like for you to hire district residents. We'd like for you to hire um, um, contract with African-American businesses. So I think my success was greatly due to the fact that I understood the power that I had to help the community. And they understood I knew how to do that. See, you, you bring up a very, a very important word and you've said it now, I think I want to say three times, and then you've made reference to that same word, I think two or three other times when you're talking about leveraging and so on and so forth. Um, that, that word is power, right? Um, you, were, you were named the most powerful woman in Washington, D.C. by Washingtonian Magazine and by the Washington Business Journal multiple times over the years. So you, you seem to have... Um, um, stepped into power, understanding the, the, the good that power could do. But 
you know, most people who are listening to this are, you know, are public servant, public servants, and they tend to to have this adverse reaction to the word power and wanting to gain power. Um, let's start about what do you, how do you define power? How, how do you define it? Well, I'll tell you why people resist um, the word because power is used to uh, very often to aggrandize the individual. That was not my my focus, my focus of the use of power was to, um, to, uh, uh, to help the community, uh, to build the community. So I wasn't using power so I could um, make sure that uh, political friends got contracts. I was not using power uh, in order to make sure that I could go to the next step uh, in elected office. Um, I recognized that the power I had was the power given to me by the community in order to advance their needs. And so that's a very different perspective on power. And I think power and leverage for me were, were very, very important. It means that the use of power for a public purpose um, is, is the way I, I think about that. And I think there are a lot of people in government uh, who also would recognize that the um, approvals that they give um, for whatever is before them also can be leveraged in the interest of the community with the support of the elected people um, in, in that community. And that's something that I think it's very important for all of us to learn. That is, what, what do we have that allows us to leverage for the community? Is it people? Is it money? Uh, is it authority? Is it position? And how do we use it? I, I, I could not agree with you more. And I, you know, I, again, this, this, this conversation is very timely. I was just having a conversation with a young lady today um, talking about power. And um, I, I recommended a book called um, The 48 Laws of Power, right? And she told me, she said, Alex, I started reading this book and it's scary. <laughs> and I told her, I'm like, look, it, you know, it's, it's not, it, power isn't scary, that that book isn't scary. It's how you utilize it, right? You know, how do you utilize those, those, those skills, those strategies? Um, and it sounds like you, you found the, um, the, 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 the tools, you knew what you had, you know, where you had power and you leveraged those to help your communities and those who you serve. And so that would be something that other, others should be doing, actively doing. I think so. I, I think people should should recognize um, the good that can be done um, ethically, morally. And I think those are two words that are very important. We can look at this current administration and see how power has been used immorally, unethically, dangerously, unkindly, cruelly. Um, but those are the uses of power that we all abhor. But power used in the interest of building communities and serving communities is what the public um, domain should be. So you, you, you got on that, that influential, that powerful committee. Can, can I ask what made you, what drew you to that committee? Did, did, you, did you see, okay, this is a committee that has influence. I can help my, my constituents out. Did you just happen to um, to get on that committee? Um, what what made you aim towards um, uh, securing that, that that position? 
Well, you know, it's important uh, to, to look at the political dynamics whenever people are elected. And one of the political dynamics for me um, was that I was running for a position in the Ward 4 community that um, had been occupied by uh, Arrington Dixon. Uh, Arrington Dixon uh, ran for chairman of the city council, uh, which is why I was then able to run for his seat. Uh, it was Arrington that touched me on the shoulder um, in a field of some 15 people um, to indicate that this person uh, would be a person to choose. So I am forever grateful to Arrington for, for that support which he gave me and also to the fact that when I became a member of the council, uh, Arrington was the council chairman. Arrington had the right to appoint chairs of committees. Uh, and thus it was that I came to have the chairmanship of the Economic Development Committee because my goal coming into office was to rebuild our commercial corridors. So one of the things that's important is that you do rely on people who are your patrons, your advocates. Uh, and I, I certainly would have not had the opportunity had um, Chairman Dixon not nominated that me for that committee and I, I was supported by members of the council all know. I will tell you that I was the junior member of the council and we did not have a seniority rule at the time. Um, and because of, of, uh, of my ascension to a very important committee as a junior, um, the council decided to have a seniority rule. So once again, <laughs> I have to be grateful uh, to Arrington for that support. So, so um, this is perfect. And I, I'd love if you can give me some mentoring right now, actually. Um, so I'm in the middle of reading um, Condoleezza Rice's um, book, I think her memoirs. I can't remember the, the title of it right now, but it's the one that she's talking about her time as national security advisor. Um, and she I was talking to my wife this morning, this morning as we were driving home. Um, and she was talking about, oh, you know, me and my friend, such and such, who was the dean of this, or me and my, my really good friend, who was the secretary of the, like, you know, she's, she's mentioning these very influential people who are just really close to her. Um, and then even how she met George Bush, um, W, was by working for her, her um, his father, and his father invited her over to the house, and that's how she met him, and, and, and that was her, uh, continued her ascension. Um, and it just made me think about, like, how do you do that? Like you said, you know, someone tapped you on your shoulder. How do you go about finding yourself around those people who are in influential positions who can help you move up and, and do good? Do you, do you have any? Well, first of all, let me say, build relationships before you need them. Uh, and if you're trying to build relationships with people who you consider to be a um, uh, people you look up to who could be mentors, then the best way to build a relationship with that person or those persons is to say, I admire your work. Um, I admire your leadership. I wish that I could ask you to spend some time mentoring me. So what you've done is to ask someone who would be pleased that a young person wanted to learn um, and so you build that relationship. You build that relationship when you don't need it. You build that relationship when the opportunity comes for your mentor to say, I like 
you're thinking. I like what you're doing. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, let me see if I can um, give you some guidance about the place that you want to be. And so make your friends before you need them. And do not make friends in order to use your friends. Make friends because you have a genuine interest in them uh, and because they feel that you have a genuine interest in them. Um, if you develop a um, reputation as being a user of people, that will sink your relationship with people. So you want to have genuine relationships and you want to build them with, with the idea that you're building long-term relationships. And so again, thank you for this. I'm, I'm knowing that everyone's now taking notes and, and really appreciating everything you're saying. And, you know, the, the challenge that I, I, I consistently think about is the, we want to be around, we want to end up having good friends and colleagues who, who can help us and we can help them and so on and so forth. Um, but we only have so much time. And so we have to decide you know, who we spend time with, who we don't, you know, we, you know, are we going to spend time with our spouses? Are we going to be out networking? Like, like, I guess, how did you decide? Um, and how do you, cause you're, you're, you're quote unquote retired. You're, you're not retired. Um, you know, you have a lot on your plate yet. I, I, I think I'm hearing that you're still out building relationships cause you know, those things are important. How do you decide um, how to allocate your time? I, I, do you have you, you have a, you have a, a scientific tool to do that? <laughs> well, I, I haven't really been terribly successful at that. Um, and I'm called upon a great deal. But I believe that the reason that I'm called upon a great deal is because I don't want anything from anyone. I'm not asking for a favor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what I'm doing is giving my best um, strategic advice uh, to people, to groups of people, and especially during this time to people who really want to talk about race um, and people who are in the white community that are completely betwixt and between and not really understanding how they should um, try to relate. Um, and frankly, to a lot of, of African-Americans who are trying to figure out, all right, what's my best way of relating um, to others? And I will tell you about um, a young man. I am a, a trustee at Oberlin College, and I'm also a graduate of Oberlin College. And uh, the head of our uh, student government association said that African-American students had great um, agency now to call people out, to call them out if they heard implicit bias, to call them out and even to call them racist if they heard uh, something they didn't like the effect of that was to shut white students down completely. They stopped talking. They didn't know um, how then to have these conversations. So mm -hmm. our student mm -hmm. government president said, well, don't call them out, call them in. And if they say something uh, that you believe is representative of, of implicit bias or not racism, say, do you know how I heard what you just said? And if the person right. wants to engage, we'll say, no, I, I don't understand why you will have a front that I called you articulate. And you say, here's why um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am uh, uh, troubled by that. 
because it tells me that your implicit assumption is that I'm <laughs> not going to be able mm -hmm. to speak properly, um, to carry a sentence, to, to, uh, to think strategically. And I want you to know that that is the wrong assumption to have about people of color. So that's why I spend a lot of time. But I'm, I also have had a lot of experiences. Uh, I, I now have taught at the collegiate level. I have been a, a researcher in science, so I know the brain. Uh, I have been an elected official and I know economic development. I have been a college president and I understand the college environment and faculty and staff and student issues. So it's like having had an interdisciplinary course of life. So when I'm asked a question, I can bring any of those various backgrounds to the answer to the question because um, I have had those experiences. Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to use them because having all of those experiences brings me a, to a different outcome than many would if they hadn't been, you know, if I hadn't been as, as interdisciplinary as I've been in my own career. Uh, so, I, you, again, you keep, you keep making so many great, telling so many great stories. I, I, I got to ask another question. So you just talked about the value of your diverse experience and how you can bring those to the table to, to help, um, to help solve challenges and problems and help others. Um, so where do you sit on the, the, the argument, the debate on whether you should focus in an area and grow in a particular area, or do you remain a, um, a generalist and you know, stay inter interdisciplinary? Um, do you, I have some thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear yours. Well, you know, it, you, you've got to take into account uh, personal attributes. And I think mine, um, my, my driver um, has been mastery. In other words, I, I wanted to master an area. I didn't mm -hmm. go into an area, I didn't go into NIH as a basic researcher and say, my goal is to be the head of NIH. Right. Um, and and so I wanted to master the area. I wanted to say, OK, I've done enough. I know this. Um, and now I want to move to another area where I feel motivated to to move because I think it's important and I'd like to master that area. And so I moved into political life and political life was very exciting because elected officials have to master a lot of things. I did not know anything about building convention centers. Um, but once I had the task of do, helping to do the financing of a convention center, I learned about steel and I learned about construction. And so I got great mastery um, of, of a lot of things as a result of being a member of the council. But then I was motivated because economic development and business success doesn't come to everyone. And in our community, in our community of small businesses, a lot of our small businesses and women were struggling. And I thought, mm -hmm. I can't, I'm not in a position to teach that from here. 
So let me look at an opportunity. So I found the opportunity at Southeastern University, um, a college that was founded by the YMCA in 1879 to give people practical skills in like accounting. And this is where um, business education became important um, so that um, small businesses need to know business planning. They need to know human resource planning. They need to know financial planning. Um, they need to know marketing. And so I thought I can take some of the economic development insights that I got. I saw who was successful. I saw there was a racial component to that. And I said, where can I go that will really be in a position to help people of yeah. color, people yeah. who are uh, women in small businesses. And so I did that. Um, and at, at the time that I realized that this university was so small that it could not really survive as a standalone, um, I decided with my board to merge the university with another entity. Um, and that's when I moved out of active um, day-to-day paid uh, work and moved, and moved into the arena um, of supporting um, other kinds of enterprises. So I sit on the University of the District of Columbia board because I believe in its mission. Um, I'm on the Washington Housing Conservancy board because I believe in its mission, um, which is to help this um, help retain um, families who are being threatened by gentrification um, or to help families get into new kinds of neighborhoods where they can find the good schools that they want and good schools that they need. Um, I talked to um, the folks who are interested in creating an anti-racist um, program. So these are the things that I do um, in this part of my life, um, because I actually want to help other people master what it is that they are doing. So I have a real achievement drive. And that achievement drive came from my father and my mother. And my father said, excellence of performance will overcome any artificial obstacles created by man. Um, that means be the very best at what you do. Um, excellence of performance will move your will move you forward, and I believe that, and that's why mastery and achievement became very important to me. Thank you for tuning in to the Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than seventy five years. WEBA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEBA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. 
However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com slash courses slash networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code PODCASTFAMILY on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com slash courses slash networking. And now back to The Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. So, so now, again, you and I are completely in alignment. Um, I call it the LeBron effect or even Jay-Z effect. Um, you know, Le- LeBron is a businessman, um, uh, but he's a basketball player. Like, and he sought mastery as a basketball player first. And because he was so good at that, other opportunities um, became open to him. But if he had been mediocre at basketball, mediocre at everything he did, those opportunities I feel like wouldn't have been offered to him. So seeking mastery is something I am completely on on board with. Um, You mentioned your father. So if I can ask one question, then there's a a reason why I'm asking this. Um, Would you like to just really quickly, for anyone who doesn't know, um, just tell us a little about your father and what he's, what he, who he is. I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Um, well, good. My my dad um, died in 1950. Let, let me do that as a precy here. here. Um, he was a Denver High School graduate. Uh, he went to Amherst College um, with three others of his classmates uh, from Dunbar High School. And his coach, uh, E.B. Henderson, was a person who believed that um, these young men who were sm- good at sports could also be smart at academics, and those four young men proved that to be the case. Um, My dad's sister died in the 1918 flu epidemic, and we believe that's why he became a a physician. Uh, He was not admitted to medical schools in um, the country, and so he went to McGill Medical School in in, uh, Canada, um, where he completed his his MD degree. Um, He took a... a, um, a position um, within the hospital there uh, as an uh, intern, but then went further to earn a doctor of science degree um, uh, from Columbia University uh, with a thesis called Banked Blood. That thesis, Banked Blood, described uh, the way that whole red blood could be stored and plasma, the yellow substance in blood, could be stored um, and saved by dehydrating that um, plasma and taking it to the battlefield during the Second World War. So Dr. Drew was named the head of the Blood for Britain project during the Second World War so he could get that plasma to to the soldiers in the battlefield. The plasma was shipped there under his oversight uh, and was reconstituted on the battlefield and saved thousands of lives as, as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we consider that to be quite a scientific achievement, and we're very proud of that. 
<clears throat> and he worked very hard at that. My father considered that probably one of the most important things that he did was to teach other African-American surgeons uh, at Howard University. And he believed in their ability to achieve and he um, repeated and repeated the mantra, excellence of performance will overcome any artificial barriers created by man. So he would send his residents um, out to some of the finest um, institutions, medical institutions, and tell them to learn and to bring that back um, to Howard University. Uh, in 1950, my dad was driving uh, to North Carolina with his residents, was driving all night because there were no hotels that served African-Americans. Um, he fell asleep at the wheel. Um, he was very badly injured. He was taken to a local hospital. He was not denied admission and he was not denied treatment. Um, and he succumbed because he had tremendous injuries as a result of a car that turned over on him. Um, but the, um, the myth uh, arose and we finally, some years later, because a young woman did a PhD thesis at Duke University, um, found that there had been another gentleman, another African-American on the same road who'd lost his life, who was denied admission to Duke University Hospital. My father was ad admitted at, at uh, Alamance uh, County Hospital um, where he was treated by two surgeons, the Cronodal brothers who talked to my mother and the residents and so we are assured that his injuries were so severe that he couldn't have survived. But if he hadn't been driving all night, he might not have fallen asleep at the wheel. So that's the story of <clears throat> segregation um, in, in the South. <clears throat> and so it, it is uh, those two things, um, I think, for which he is remembered. Um, but his teaching of African-American surgeons was what really was the heart and soul um, of this man. Well, one, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I know I appreciated it. And I know everyone who's listening and watching uh, does did and does as well. Um, I guess w one of the reasons why I asked you to share that story is because you had a huge individual as your father, right? He had accomplished so much and helped so many people. Um, I guess my question is, did you, were you worried about being in his shadow? And did you intentionally try to do something, you know, be different just to, to not be in his shadow? And the, the reason for this question is I, I feel like um, there are a lot of people, because you may have gotten resources or connections based off of that. And I think there's a lot of people, though, who are worried that um, they don't want to get a help up. They don't want to get a handout or quote unquote handout. They don't want help from someone else because they want to be known as doing it themselves versus someone else help them. So I, I'm wondering, you know, so how was for you, did you intentionally um, try to break yourself away from, you know, his story, possibly shadow? And then the other second question is, you know, what should other people think about, um, using other people's help to help them in their careers? Well, I never tried to break away from my, my father's um, shadow at all. In fact, I was driven by my father's uh, words. Excellence of performance will overcome any artificial barriers. So for me, um, that mastery, that 
achievement was a fulfillment of my father's expectations. So I never tried to separate myself um, from his perspective because it was my perspective that I wanted to have pleased him mm -hmm. in the mastery of whatever I did. And I always felt that I was achieving not because of my name, um, I was achieving because of my father's encouragement. And so I never yeah. um, traded on that uh, at all. Now, people may have perceived me to have been the daughter of, but that wasn't the manner in which I held myself out. Um, I held myself out as an achiever because that was an expectation that I got from being a member of that family. Yes, ma'am. Um, but there's also nothing wrong with having other people help you. Uh, in fact, it's, it is smart um, to say to other people who you think can help. I mean, this goes back to the conversation. You don't want to be a user. You want to develop genuine relationships with people such that if you say to them, give me some ideas about how I can open this door. You know, I really want to be the head of the EPA, right? I, I, I really want uh, to be the head of the uh, AAAS, American Association for the End of Science. I want to be the dean of uh, the Wharton School of Business. There was a, 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 a wonderful African-American Caribbean woman named as the head of the Wharton School of Business, the, uh, the dean. Um, and so those aspirations are no longer um, um, impossible. So if you say to somebody, you, you know, my, my goal is to be the, the, the president of Yale University. My goal um, is to be um, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or I want to be the diversity officer at Verizon. And you say that to somebody with whom you've developed a relationship. That person says, let me see if I can open that door for you. Let me see who I know. Yeah. And that's why relationship building is critical, but it's got to be authentic. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree anymore. Um, and so, I, again, there's, there's I, you know, a couple more questions I want to make sure I throw um, talk your way. Um, so, again, another conversation I was having with a, um, a senior leader uh, a couple weeks ago now. And we were talking about um, why I always say, some advice that I was given early on in my career by the Deputy Assistant Secretary um, of Interior was the person with the most information wins. Um, and so what she was saying, what I understood her to be saying was that um, the more information I had, the more uh, data I had, I was going on around me, the better decisions I could make. Um, and as I, I preach and I teach that as well, and the question comes up, you know, as, as people are sharing information with you and they, they share with you because they know they can trust you, you're not going to share it with someone else. Um, when is it, when should you say, no, I don't want to hear that, or that's wrong or push back. Um, my, 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 my line has always been, um, I, I, I can hear from everyone. I can hear from Republicans, Democrats, senior leaders, like they, they can share with me because they know I'm not going to share anywhere else. Um, but I, again, I know that people feel uncomfortable sometimes if someone shares something with them and they, they may judge them. I tell people don't judge, you know, just hear. I guess because you, I guess my, my, my question is, 
you have, I know that you've heard information um, from many sides on different topics. And how do you know when to share that information um, and when not to share it, even though you feel bad about it? Well, I, it, it sounds like you're, you're, you're thinking about a specific um, kind of incident. Uh, if you have to, if you have to think about whether or not you should be sharing that information, you probably shouldn't be sharing it. If, if it occurs to you that you shouldn't be sharing it, then you shouldn't be sharing it. Uh, and one of the things that I think is most important in relationships is that people who talk to you understand that everything that they say is not going to be repeated to the next person. And if 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 those people can trust you in a in a relationship that is authentic, where um, you have information, you're able to use information in a way um, that advances you because it has been shared in that way. But if you use information, first, for example, to get ahead of somebody else um, in line uh, who is about to make a decision, you're creating a relationship problem for yourself. Um, and and mm -hmm. that's not good for long-term relationships. Yeah. So, you know, then you'll, folks will say, don't share with him. You know, he'll tell the next person. Or he's, he's, very, he's very careful about information. You can share information with him and understand that it's not going to be further, go further. Or if it is, he comes back to you and he says, you told me X, Y, Z. I'd like to be able to use that information. May I use it? that develops an authentic relationship. Uh, again, I, I feel like my, my, my mind is just opening up. I honestly never thought of just going back to ask, actually. <laughs> um, I, again, you know, asking, asking is always a, a great tool. So just, you know, I, I was always, me personally, I just, I try to be a lockbox. So everyone knows they talk to me, it's not going anywhere. Um, and like you said, if you use information, you know, to further your own your own devices, then you could be seen as someone who's um, who's self uh, who's self focused, and maybe um, that person then doesn't share things with you like they get in, the, in the future. But literally, just going back and say, "Hey, there's an opportunity. Do you mind if I utilize this information for that?" I mean, that sounds so obvious, but <laughs> it's it's important in maintaining the relationships. You're going to be building relationships all your life as a young man. And so will a lot of other people at your stage of life. They're going to be building relationships. And the authenticity of those relationships is what is going to keep you moving. So I guess I, I do want to ask you about, um, uh, when we're talking about relationships, have you ever been in a situation where you had to work with someone you didn't maybe care for, didn't necessarily respect, but it was someone who you had to work with to get something done. Um, how did you, how did you go about maintaining or maybe building or maintaining that relationship, even though you don't, maybe you don't even trust them, let's say you don't like them, don't respect, them, don't trust them, but there's someone you have to work with. Have you ever been in that situation? And how did you maneuver that relationship? Well, I can give you a couple of answers. Um, uh, first of all, um, women who are in powerful positions are threatening to men. And, and so very often what I, um, I chose the way I 
I had conversations. So instead of saying, um, now this is a, a, this can be true in, in female, female um, relationships as well in work. Um, but I would say, you know, I was thinking about doing um, this ABC and I wonder what you think about that. That is heard differently than I think you ought to do this. It's heard very differently. So the, the yeah. way in which you handle those conversations in which you know there's going to be a little bit of pushback, uh, the more you're going to be viewed as a woman who was too aggressive, then you, you essentially put the ball in the court of the, the guy and say, what do you think about that? So you've, you, you've not threatened. Yeah. Um, so I found that to be very useful. Um, but the other thing is that people love to talk about themselves. So that if you are in some sort of a um, work or personal relationship with someone that you really don't care very much about, you might find that there really is something that you could find to like. If you say to that um, person, boy, I, he I heard you had a good golf game. Um, you know, you're reading that book, but what, is that something you recommend for me? Or... Um, you know, I heard you make a comment to somebody the other day, which I thought was really insightful. Um, how'd you come to that? I mean, people love to talk about themselves. And as soon as you let them talk about themselves to you, you open a door. But if you say to them, I don't think I agree with that. If you say, I wonder how, tell me how you came through that. How did you, how did you think through that? How, you know, what was your mindset there, right? It's always pulling people out of their discomfort zone. And some people say, I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be bothered with telling white people, you know, how they could, could, could get along. That's their own problem. I don't happen to believe that. I believe you have to talk to people and find the way that you can talk to people that will make it comfortable for you, even if you don't agree. Uh, again, so many words of wisdom. And, you know, I... I Obviously, I'm not a woman. Um, and I get asked the question um, about, again, my, my expertise lies in influence and, and, and strategic relationship building. And so I, I, I often get the question, well, as a woman, I, um, I am perceived a different way if I use certain language and so on and so forth. So that's what you were just talking about. And my go-to answer is actually exactly what you said. You know, there's different ways to influence using, you know, you can use softer language. You can influence someone over here to influence the other person. Like there's so many different ways to, to make, um, make people move or help people move in the right direction. Um, but what would you say to that individual, that woman who says, why should I have to speak differently? Why can't I be this straightforward, assertive person, just like my male counterpart. Um, what would you say to that person? I would say, do you want to get things done? Or do you want to be in the middle of a fight, a perpetual fight? Um, because you haven't taken anybody into consideration in that relationship to set yourself. You have not taken into account the other person. And you've got to be a little bit of Machiavellian in your approach to people. You, you want a means to an end, right? So if, if you are, are trying to convince something about something that you want or need or have to demonstrate to somebody else that you can get, 
it doesn't seem very useful to pick a fight. And it, it seems more useful to me to think, how can I get what I want by changing the way in which I have this relationship? I, again, I think this, your answer could not be stated better. Um, and I think you also said something that I think was really important. You said, how do I get what I want? Um, I think that is a question that more people need to think about before they act. What is it that you want, right? Um, do you want to get this thing moved from A to B or is it more important to say your request a particular type of way? And maybe it is <laughs> more important for you to say the request a different type of way. But like you said, now you're putting up more barriers in, in front of getting this box moved from A to B. Um, actually taking the time to, to think about what you want um, before you're, you're taking your actions. Um, I, I love it. Um, I'm going to say one last story and I'm going to um, share one last story and I'm going to get your reaction. Then I kind of open it up to any final thoughts you may have. Um, I tell this story in, in this, this networking course I have online and long story short, when I was younger, um, I was uh, in, in high school, I was uh, like all CIF, all LA Times, like all these awards in, um, in, um, in, in football. It was pretty good, right? Um, I, the plan was to go to college on a football scholarship. Well, this guy, this guy, um, he does something that is very disrespectful, very disrespectful. And as a man, right, as a man, I can't let that happen. So I spend the entire day going around campus looking for this guy because I'm about to fight him. Like we're, we're not, we're not doing this. Right. Um, so I find the guy and he walks over to me and, you know, we're about to do what we're about to do. And then he says, go on, do it. Hit me. I ain't got nothing to lose. You're going to be off the football team. And it made me stop and think I was like, shoot, I am the only one who has something to lose. And I guess I've kept that with me now moving forward. Um, and, and another friend I would just tell the same thing. Like I am very watchful of my actions and how I deal with situations because I do know I have things I want to accomplish and I have things I want to that I don't want to lose. And so um, just from the, just that, I guess that story, do you have any reactions to the thought of, you know, maybe sometimes you want to do something so bad, but what do I have to lose by, by doing it? Well, the answer is think before you act. And, and, and being now, I'm a, now I'm a neuroscientist. And so you want your <laughs> prefrontal cortex to be in charge you, and, and not your amygdala. You, you, you don't want your, your emotion to be in charge. You want your uh, logical processing to be in charge. So you're going to have to stifle th that, that emotion center, that amygdala, and, you know, say yield to my better judgment. Mm -hmm. um, because, I, and, and, and take my long-term reward rather than my short-term um, reward. If my short-term reward is just revenge, okay, then where does that get me? What's my long-term reward? that I want. And, and again, you have to be kind of Machiavellian. You have to say to yourself, I'm, this is a means to an end. What do I want to do? 
right? Does that make you weak though? Does, does it make you, do you feel weak? Do you look weak? If you don't just, if someone says something to you in the office and you don't fire back, does that make you look weak? No. Um, essentially you're not fine. You're, you're saying you're really not my, you're not worth my time. You're not worth my energy to take you on, right? I, I don't consider you a combatant. Mm, 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 I just mm. don't consider you a combatant. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Um, it can be a funny reference for anyone who thinks about this right now, but it's, um, it reminds me of uh, the Jeezy um, Gucci man um, uh, verses, you know, they, they knew these verses kind of from old school songs, people singing back and forth. Um, something happened, and I felt like a lot of people felt like Jeezy um, just said, you know, you know what? It's, I'm older now. This is kid stuff. I'm not even engaging in it. And it was funny because that it was all over the internet that everyone was on Jeezy's side because he was like, not doing this like that, that this is kid stuff <laughs> so I, I i love that perspective you're not even it's not even worth it um so what i want to do right now is just kind of open the floor back to you is you know is there any advice any thoughts any recommendations that you would share um with the audience on if they wanted to progress in their career keep moving forward um and serve and do the good deeds as you've done do you have any advice you share with them well, if you have goals toward which you are moving, um, build the relationships, let people know where you want to go, um, build the relationships that will help you to get there. Don't be in a position of having somebody put in a position and you say later on, I, I was really interested and that person says, well, who did you let know? In other words, tell people, you know, it, it, it is re it's my goal to move up. Um, it is my goal to take this position. It's my goal um, to master this skill so that I can move up. What, what do I need to do in order to do that? And, and you know, an employee or a, a, a person who's just getting a professional career moving who um, is persistent, um, is, that's a valued employee. Persistence is a very, very valuable skill. I used to say to people, if you have an interest in having a job here, be persistent. Don't see me in the halls and say that you sent a resume. For me, that is, it, it is the most, um, it, it, it is the smallest part of the beginning of an effort, right? If you can't persist long enough to make sure that I come to your attention by the multiple ways in which you um, send notes to me, do not expect me to make you top of my agenda, right? Don't come and say, why didn't you get a call? Well, how often did you send the resume? What did you say you would bring to the university? What did you say you would bring to the you know, elected office? What did you say you would bring to this organization? What could you do to help the organization? Is it, is it, are you telling people only what you've done as opposed to what you've achieved? Mm. How about making a resume that talks about achievements rather than act, actions? 
Don't say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done. We want to know what, what have you learned? What are your skills? What are strategic um, directions? So um, y- you have to be, you have to work at that. <laughs> you, you don't say, recognize me because I have talent and I've sent you my resume. That, that doesn't work. Recognize that I have talent because I persist, because I know how I can help your business, because I understand how to, um, to acquire new knowledge, you know. There's, it's work at it. Dr. Jarvis, there, there, there is literally nothing else that needs to be said. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for all the stories and the, and the guidance and advice that you've shared. Because again, I'm telling you, it, it, it has definitely changed how I will be moving forward um, in my life and in my career. And I'm sure that everyone here listening today, watching today, um, is going to be doing the same thing. Um, for those of you who are listening and watching, again, I encourage you, as I always do, don't just look back, reach back, right? So don't just you know see that someone else needs your help reach back, provide this video. If you thought this video, this interview was helpful, beneficial, provided you any value at all, make sure you see, make sure someone else sees it so they can get the same value and they can move forward and help serve not only their community, but also their independent, their families. As always, make sure you click that like, subscribe, share, all those different buttons you gotta be clicking. And again, thank you so much. This is Alex Trimble. Stay strong, stay positive, stay moving. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dr. Jarvis. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.